Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Leighton. This is Open Source. Ukraine is one of those gruesome scenes that come with the warning. It could get a great deal worse. We're looking hard this hour into the deep, dark shadows of nuclear weaponry and war looming all around the hard slog on the ground, inconclusive in its third week between Russian invaders and Ukraine's military and volunteer defenses. The Russian dictator Vladimir Putin, even before he invaded Ukraine, boasted of his nuclear potency, matched only by the American arsenal, roughly 6,000 warheads on either side. President Biden for the U.S. stands with the Ukrainians, but not on their battlefield, precisely to steer clear of Armageddon between the superpowers. The plea from President Zelensky and besieged Ukrainians, and some in Congress too, is to get the U.S. off the sidelines into the fight. At what risk we are putting it to our guests this hour? We're in collaboration here with the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft in a radio podcast series we're calling In Search of Monsters. Joseph Cirincione leads off. He's been a plain-spoken citizen voice in every arms control argument for most of 30 years. For arms control and abolition against nuclear proliferation. The thought I can't get out of my mind this week is a question. What if nuclear weapons are the next step in this unmerciful Ukraine war? We are closer to the nuclear brink than we've been in many years. You have to go back to the scares of the early 1980s, back to the 1960s and the Cuban Missile Crisis. You know, U.S. and Russian forces have never engaged in sustained combat, not because, you know, NATO rules prohibit it exactly. It's more the threat that combat with Russian forces would lead to a nuclear exchange. And over the last 10 to 15 years, that risk has actually grown as both the U.S. and Russia have developed new strategies of integrated deterrence that see a a smooth, seamless continuum between economic tools of coercion, conventional war, cyber war, and nuclear war. And war games show that once you start a nuclear exchange, there's no logical termination point. The tendency is to escalate, not stop. What's the mistake, the accident, the strategy that you most worry about? We don't know exactly what Putin meant when he said he was putting his nuclear forces on special combat readiness status. But what we think it means is that he's changed the alert status of the command and control communication system for Russian weapons. In normal times, what they call constant alert of those forces prohibits the transmission of a nuclear launch order. It's a safety mechanism to prevent accidental or inadvertent launches. It appears that Putin has now raised the level to allow the transmission of a launch order. In other words, he's taken the safety off the nuclear gun. Mm. That raises the risk that in the heat of battle, again, there could be an accidental launch. That's the first thing you worry about. But then there's also the possibility that Putin is serious about this, that he means what he says about using nuclear weapons, that he thinks that the sanctions alone are a threat that justifies nuclear use. And part of Russian doctrine would indicate that this is correct. And if Putin starts to lose this war, 
he might lose everything. And like a gambler at a table who's losing and decides to mortgage the house in one more grand bet that he hopes will save him, mm. he might use nuclear weapons to cause the United States and NATO forces to back off, to pull victory out of defeat, betting that the U.S. won't respond. And the final risk involves nuclear power. I mean, he is attacking nuclear power reactors. This has never happened in the history of nuclear energy. No country, no group has ever attacked a nuclear power plant, not during the history of Arab-Israeli wars. No one's ever done this. And he's not only attacked one, mm -hmm. risking a nuclear catastrophe, he's now seized the plant and is forcing the operators to operate the plant at gunpoint. And his forces are marching on Ukraine's second largest nuclear power facility. This could spiral out of control in multiple ways. What have happened to the idea of deterrence and weapons so unimaginably destructive we won't even go there? We won't take the safety off. We'll barely talk about them. You know, for years we've been told that nuclear weapons would protect us, that nuclear weapons have kept the peace in Europe, that this is why there hasn't been a conventional war in Europe since the end of World War II. And when people propound this theory, they tend to ignore everything else, the strength of the NATO alliance, the economic interconnections, the desire of the people themselves to avoid any war. And they bestow this sort of magical quality on nuclear weapons as keeping the peace. And there is some truth to that. But now we're seeing the flip side. Once conventional conflict does start, nuclear weapons aren't a shield for us. They're a sword. This is aimed at us. And so trying to stop Putin now, even by simple things like sending combat aircraft to Ukraine, something the U.S. is now talking about, Putin says that that would be considered a threat. He would consider that engaging in combat activities, mm. and that by itself risks Russian attacks on a conventional level, possibly on a nuclear level. So no, nuclear deterrence is not protecting us. Nuclear weapons are not our greatest security. They're our greatest threat. We can sort of see it now that a nuclear threat keeps the fighting conventional in a certain way, and it could go on forever almost, as in Vietnam, as long as it doesn't go nuclear. But then conventional warfare in the Ukraine case is constructed in such a way that it reaches a limit, and if we go to a no-fly zone or put NATO troops in the field, that's a cue to the nukes. Yeah, it's absolutely true. Look, one of the things this war has done is expose the weakness of Russia's conventional military. This is not the military we thought we were going to be confronting. I mean, when the Cold War ended, when the Berlin Wall collapsed, and we realized that the Soviet forces were not as formidable as we thought, we believed that the Russian forces that took their place over the last 30 years were, in fact, quite formidable. But they are beset with difficulties from equipment to logistical or coordination to the morale of their forces. Yep. So it's highly unlikely that Russian forces could withstand NATO forces. I mean, we would just rip up those armored columns. And at that point... Putin really would not have a conventional defensive option at his disposal. Could he use cyber weapons to try to shut us down? Yes, but our cyber capabilities are quite good. And then he might reach for the nuclear option. In fact, there is a doctrine in Russian military writing. It's not clear that Russia has adopted this doctrine, but it's something called escalate to de-escalate. And the theory, as hmm. the Russians have written about it, says that if Russia is losing a conventional war 
they will then use a nuclear weapon, maybe in a demonstration shot, maybe a small yield nuclear weapon, say below the level of the Hiroshima bomb, to signal their seriousness, to signal that this was an existential threat to them and the West better back off. The problem with that is war games have indicated that in such a scenario, the West wouldn't back off, that there would be tremendous pressure for us to meet that threat in kind. And you see American writings about Mm. this, that we would respond with our own small yield nuclear weapon. And then, of course, you're raising the bet. Now you're playing nuclear poker. And you think the other guy is bluffing? What if he's not? And you can see where this goes and how easily in war games that we conduct, we see each side rolling the dice again and again, betting that their response will be decisive, their move will be the last move. It rarely is. One final note on this. All our nuclear deterrence theory is based on the idea of rational actors. That's why you see so much reference to game theory in these things. What is the logical thing that someone would do when confronted with such and such a situation? Well, is Putin rational? Is he stable, right? Joe Sorensuni, I come to see this frightful mess in Ukraine as the culmination of three critical failures after World War II from 1945. The state borders turn out to be movable as in the notorious expansion of NATO eastward. But second point, this abiding hostility between the key allies who defeated Hitler, most especially between the Soviet Russians, who did most of the fighting, took most of the casualties, and the Americans, who proudly claimed victory. Third point, the failure to contain or outlaw or abolish these most horrendous weapons ever used, it all comes together in Ukraine. The borders, the hostility, and those nukes. I mean, does that take you anywhere back toward a place where this might have been prevented or all this might have been avoided? Oh, absolutely. What were we thinking, leaving so much trouble in the air, on the ground, in the weapons, in the arsenals? Well, in addition to those factors that you mentioned, I would do two others, three others, actually. One is the 1990s, how we surged forward on NATO expansion, really brushing aside what Russians told us, not just Putin. I mean, Boris Yeltsin told us this, that this was seen as a threat to Russia, and we just brushed it aside and look where we are. The other is the U.S., economic advice that we gave to Russia. Russia was flooded in the 1990s with this kind of, uh, you know, raw capitalism that ended up creating this set of oligarchs that took over Russian uh, state assets and made their huge fortune. I mean, where did these guys come from? Well, they came from stealing resources from the Russian people and privatizing them. And the third is not seizing the opportunity to get rid of these weapons when we had the chance. These were weapons that were constructed during the Cold War. We went nuclear nuts in the 50s and 60s, built up massive arsenals. During the height of the Cold War in the 1980s, there were about 70,000 nuclear weapons in the world, most held by the U.S. and Russia. We've come down, thanks to arms control treaties, beginning with Ronald Reagan, down to about 13,000 now. But that's still many times more than you need to destroy all human life on this planet. 
And as we started to come down, you may remember Obama's President Obama's first speech in Prague in April 2009, where he said, we're going to seek a world with the peace and security without nuclear weapons. That's what we want. These nuclear weapons threaten us. We don't need them. But this was resisted. People in here and in other countries saw nuclear weapons as essential. Some saw them as a very profitable mm. product that they could make billions of dollars on. And they resisted that. And we didn't seize the opportunity. And we were warned about this. I was one of the people ringing the alarm bell, but also people like Sam Nunn, Bill Perry, Henry Kissinger, George Shultz wrote op-eds warning that if we didn't take care of this, if we didn't reduce and move to eliminate these weapons, we'd be entering a new world that was more psychologically disorienting, more dangerous, and had more economic risks than during the Cold War. Well, guess what? Here we are. This is the world we're in now. Coming up, close reading the Nuclear War Manual. There's no room for democracy in it. This is Open Source. Elaine Scarry is a renowned English professor at Harvard who changed her focus in mid-career to the closest examination of the nuclear rule book. She called her book on the subject Thermonuclear Monarchy, the farthest thing from democracy. I asked Elaine Scarry this week to rate the danger of nuclear escalation in Ukraine on a scale of 1 to 10. It's hard to rate the danger because in the nuclear age, at any given moment, we could be anywhere between 1 and 10 without knowing it. Both the United States and Russia together own 93% of the world's nuclear arsenal. Both of our countries have weapons on 15-minute alert, 24-7. Notice that in all this, all the uncertainty, that we kind of feel disenfranchised. See the preposterousness and the obscenity of this situation, that you have a world that stands in danger of being subjected to a nuclear war, and yet no one really knows exactly how close we are or under what circumstances we would change from being merely nervous about it to actually suffering the immediate strikes. How do you frame the danger in your own mind at 4 o'clock in the morning? Many days at 4 o'clock in the morning, I see us as very close to the elimination of all that's good on our planet. And yet I have to keep reminding myself that in the past, when our own presidents have contemplated a first strike, I know that you're aware that we have in the United States a first-use policy. That is, our presidents will feel that they can launch a missile even if no missile has been launched at us. And in the nuclear age, when our presidents have contemplated doing that, it has not been in a situation where all of us are aware that there's big tension in the world, except in the case of the Cuban Missile Crisis. In 1954, Eisenhower considered using nuclear weapons in the Taiwan Straits. He again considered dropping an atomic bomb in 1959 in Berlin. We know from Robert McNamara that Kennedy three times saw the world on the brink of nuclear war. What McNamara says is three times we came within a hair's breadth of all-out war with Russia. We know that Lyndon Johnson considered using a nuclear weapon against China to prevent them from getting nuclear weapons. And Nixon has said he contemplated using a nuclear weapon four times. And in one of those times, he sent 18 B-52s loaded with nuclear weapons over Russia. So with the exception 
of the Cuban Missile Crisis when, yes, the American people and people all over the world knew that there was a tremendous danger of nuclear war. And in fact, Robert McNamara stresses that it was, as he says, luck and only luck that delivered us from that situation. So yes, Chris, I'm tremendously worried about Ukraine, but I also worry during times when we have no idea what's going on because we are not made privy. This is a system of weapons where only a tiny cadre of men know whether they're contemplating it or not. Elaine Gary, there's this very odd thing about democracy in this case. We like to think that this war in Ukraine is about saving democracy from autocracy or one-man rule. And yet we come to realize these nuclear weapons take all the people out of the picture entirely. There's no Congress, there's no vote, there's no press, there's no rule of law, there's no nothing. It could end with one man's decision for the planet. That's correct. It's outrageous. And, you know, on the one hand, we can say that if one of our leaders, President Biden or Putin, were to launch a missile, they would be, you know, maniacally at fault. Well, yes, of course they would. But the people of Earth, or many of them, many of them in the two major nuclear states, Russia and the United States, have allowed this situation, this nuclear architecture, to reside there and just averted our eyes. Elaine, we read and listened to you about the thermonuclear monarchy, when, 10 years ago? The whole point that these are weapons that completely preempt democracy, people power, here and in Russia, almost the same way. What in the world does it take to get action on this outrageous fact of our times. Everybody I know who works on this, who tries to speak to citizens, neighbors, feels that they're speaking on some kind of frequency that people can't hear. This is not only true for peace activists and anti-nuclear activists, but even people who have resided high within the nuclear architecture. A good example is the former head of the nuclear triad, General Lee Butler, who said when the Berlin Wall came down, the nuclear weapon should be disassembled. He even started an organization that was meant to get American people awake to this. Same thing with William Perry, Secretary of Defense in the Clinton administration. I was once at a conference at Notre Dame when Robert McNamara was there, and he, to my surprise, spoke with scorn of the American people because the American people were indifferent to the nuclear threat. And, you know, one has to say, but wait a minute, you were inside the government when it put this architecture in place and you didn't stop it. And I think that all one can do is to keep talking and hope that somebody who's listening in turn has a better power to reach other people, that somebody who's listening will not only hear the message, but have a voice that speaks on a frequency that other people can hear. Add Henry Kissinger to the list of people who grew up plotting nuclear war and say today, there are two things that get said today. One, that these are unusable weapons, but then we've got to modernize the arsenal for a trillion dollars or so. How How do we break out of that absurd conflict? Kissinger was quoted this summer as saying that we're in more danger now than we were in the 20th century because of advances in artificial intelligence and other technological feats that 
make the possibility of accidents and missteps and misfirings much more possible. And even though we keep having all these people, William Perry, Henry Kissinger, tell us that we're in the gravest possible danger. The Bulletin of Atomic Scientists has set the doomsday clock at 100 seconds to midnight. Despite all that, we are renewing the nuclear arsenal for $2 trillion, it's estimated. Yeah, and Barack Obama was on for it too. They're all on for it when it comes down to it. Yeah. Elaine, give us a short list of things you don't want to see happen, including accidents in the next few weeks in Ukraine. Accidents could happen in so many ways. Just in the past few years, the United States, meaning to send helicopter batteries to Taiwan, instead sent nuclear triggers. There was another moment sometime 2007, 2008, when we had six nuclear bombs loaded on a plane that was sitting on an open airfield for 36 hours and then flew through the air from one U.S. Air Force base to another. We've had in the past decade two nuclear submarines, one French and one English, collide under the ocean. We've had Boris Yeltsin in Russia almost fire a missile in response to a test that Norway was doing on the aurora borealis. So what kind of accidents could happen? There are so many possibilities. Elaine Scarry, thank you for bringing your own remarkable intelligence to this strange subject. Thank you for bringing your mind to this subject. That was the literary scholar Elaine Scarry. You could wonder why an esteemed Ukrainian intellectual named Serhiy Plokhi set out four years ago to write a fresh history of the Cuban Missile Crisis which came famously close to blowing up the world in 1962. Plokhi's interest had two very odd roots. First, the sheer coincidence that those nuclear missiles that Russia was delivering to Cuba 60 years ago were actually built for the Soviet Union in Plokhi's hometown in Ukraine. And second, Professor Plokhi had an intuition that some piece of Cold War history was about to repeat itself soon in Ukraine. And then there were the revelations in his research into Cuba that none of the principals in that crisis, notably Nikita Khrushchev and John Kennedy, knew quite what they were doing. The record from 1962 overflowed with blunders, misinformation, close calls with disaster. So the Plokey book got the title Nuclear Folly and also the moral that fear of those nukes may have saved us all. I'm trying to understand why we survived, despite the fact that there were so many mistakes and misunderstandings. And I have no doubt whatsoever that this war in Ukraine, the Russian aggression against Ukraine, the Russian invasion, really launched the new Cold War on the same level, or maybe even more, as the Berlin airlift in the late 1940s did. The thing that leaps out to me, Serhiy Plokhy, is that In 1962 and 2022, we have unimaginably destructive weapons, unregulated, and a complete mystery, in fact, to the men who are playing with them. Kennedy didn't understand them. Khrushchev didn't either. They're deciding about them, but they're just groping in the dark. And we're still groping in the dark for control or handle on these weapons. Yes, and the situation today in many ways is similar to the situation before the Cuban Missile Crisis. Explain that. 
What was there in the 1950s was really uncontrolled nuclear arms race. Uncontrolled yes. means that there was no agreements that were putting any sorts of caps on the nuclear weapons, on the type of the nuclear weapons, on the way how you can test them. Only the sort of uh, scare that the crisis produced opened the door for the start of negotiations. In 1963, Khrushchev and Kennedy signed the first agreement of that sort on the prohibition of the testing on the nuclear weapons in the atmosphere, yes, yes. water, and so on and so forth, which opened the door for future negotiations, non-proliferation treaty late in the 1960s, and then, of course, uh, Nixon and, and Brezhnev and later Gorbachev and Reagan. All these agreements, Cold War agreements, so almost all of them, with the exception of non-proliferation and a couple of others, have expired by now. The United States and Russia left them. Today we are in uh, almost the same bad situation as we were in the 1950s, except that the situation on a certain level is worse. Today on this unregulated nuclear highway, there are much more drivers than there was back in the 1950s, when basically there were two huge trucks going in the direction of each other on the collision course. One was driven by Khrushchev, another was driven by Kennedy. Now there are nine nuclear powers out there with their own arsenals. And the estimates are up to 40 countries, if they're threatened in one way or believe that they're threatened, they have the capacity to build the bomb within anywhere between one and three years. They prefer for political, for other reasons not to do that, but they have a capacity. So from that point of view, leaving the nuclear driveway unregulated or underregulated presents a huge threat to us as, as human beings, as humanity. Let's take the Cuban Missile Crisis as a wake-up call. And it did work in a certain way. It got us the Test Ban Treaty. It woke John Kennedy up in a very profound way, I think. It cost Nikita Khrushchev his job. It may have cost John Kennedy his job. But the world did, in some sense, wake up. Nikita Khrushchev said in his memoirs, one of the problems in the world today, this was just after the crisis, is that not enough people are sufficiently frightened by the danger of nuclear war. Kennedy said, and you quote him, saying, every man, woman, and child on this planet must contemplate the day when the planet will no longer be habitable. Extreme warnings. What's the equivalent wake-up call for 2022? These things are still around. They're unimaginably destructive. What are we going to do? We are in many ways in a more dangerous place than we were back in 1962. One reason I just mentioned that there are much more nuclear powers out there. But the second reason is that generally the, the new generation of political leaders that really came to the fore after the end of the Cold War they don't have experience of 50s and 60s. They're not frightened. They're not scared to a degree that Kennedy was after the Castle Bravo test that went wrong of the hydrogen bomb in 1954. Or Khrushchev, when he witnessed that, or in 1961, they tried the, the biggest hydrogen bomb ever in the world, the so-called Tsar Bomba. They realized in the mid-1950s that with the arrival not just of nuclear age with atomic bombs, but with the arrival of the hydrogen bomb, 
They had enough power to destroy the entire world. And that was part of their thinking, part of their calculation. And despite all the mistakes that I record, that I chronicle in the book, the world escaped the worst case scenario because there was that fear in the minds of the leaders, of the political leaders. And that fear is not there anymore in the minds of the political leaders of today. The latest example, the Russian troops attacked the nuclear power plant, opened fire, set one of the buildings on the fire and take control over over the nuclear power plant. That's just an indication of what is acceptable or at least the people are prepared to take risks with that. This is just mind-blogging and and it really, really doesn't reflect the kind of the thinking about the nuclear and the danger that the, the nuclear, either weapons or the nuclear power, pose that people of the 1940s or 1950s had. What is wrong with us that we don't know and don't act? We refuse to remember as a society, right? The experience, the the affairs, the concerns of the previous generation is not passing to the new generations. And then you wake up one day and you see that the war is back, that the uh, nuclear arms race already going on for more than one year and there is no realization of that. There is no public awareness of that. There is no demand for the knowledge, for the experience that was acquired by the previous generations. To my mind, what jumps out of your book and all of those histories is John F. Kennedy. He had experience in war, which gave him, above all, a kind of ironic, philosophical, maybe tragic view of everything. But in this case, he kept his own mind somehow, part of it anyway, above the battle. And he was the most flexible, the most ready to compromise from beginning to end. I miss that kind of philosophical mindset in the whole story today. Uh, JFK starts as a hawk, <laughs> something that is not part of the public perception or understanding of the Cuban Missile Crisis. He is the one who, during the first week, advocates the strike against the missile bases on Cuba uh, because he is politically weak, because he has to show his strength, and others are against that. But eventually he he comes around and uh, really he looks for the ways of how a compromise can be reached, including this exchange of the American missiles in Turkey, which everyone believed was useless, for Soviet missiles in Cuba. And he does that behind the back of the Vice President Johnson, behind the back of the majority of his executive committee, Yes. Overall, he turned out to be really very considerate, flexible, and his role in the peaceful resolution of this crisis is really difficult to overestimate. Yeah, Kennedy was always skeptical of the automatic military responses. He was also a curious person. You, you can see him trying to psych out Khrushchev. What is he after? What does he need? What would that mentality be doing with Vladimir Putin today? JFK was really concerned about a start of the uh, nuclear war by accident. He was a big fan of Barbara Tuckman's book, The Guns of August. Yes, he gave it out. Yeah, he ordered copies of it and sent to the commander of every military base overseas, U.S. military base overseas. That was on his mind, but he was very concerned and he was asking those. 
uh, those questions. Sergei Plokhi, I'm so grateful for your book, Nuclear Folly, The History of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Nuclear Folly then, Nuclear Folly now. We've got to get past it somehow, but you help a lot. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thanks a lot for this discussion, for your questions. Sergei Plokhi directs the Ukrainian Research Institute at Harvard. Among his books, Nuclear Folly, A History of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Coming up, the case for abolition. Back to Harry Truman's plea in the 1940s post-war. This is Open Source. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. Back where we started with Joe Cirincione, who built the plowshares movement in the 1980s, as in a better use of the steel in swords. Long before you, Joe Cirincione, Henry Stimson, who was in the war cabinet of Woodrow Wilson, World War I, and Franklin Roosevelt in World War II, Henry Stimson said almost immediately after the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombs went off, this has got to be turned over entirely to the United Nations or some international trusteeship. They should never be fired again. They must be abolished. And he was at the heart of the American establishment. Oh, could we think these things again from the beginning? This is true. So Henry Stimson was the Secretary of War that presided over the decision to drop the nuclear weapons on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But in the in the late 1940s, when the U.S. had a nuclear monopoly, which we only enjoyed for four years, both Henry Stimson and President Truman became convinced that we had to get rid of these weapons. And they proposed just what you say, these mechanisms to the United Nations. In fact, the first resolution ever introduced to the United Nations was written by Truman and argued that we should eliminate these weapons from national stockpiles and whatever weapons the U.S. had, we would place under U.N. control until we were assured that could happen. Well, the U.S.-Russian rivalry intensified. We never got to implement that kind of plan, and the arms race was on as soon as Russia tested its first nuclear bomb in 1949, and we spiraled quickly out of control. If this war ends without mass destruction, if we can end this war quickly, we're going to have a second chance to go look at all these policies, to go look back on what we could have done better, what we could have done to prevent this in the first place, and we're going to get another chance with Russia, we're going to get another chance with Europe, and we'll get another chance for nuclear disarmament. I hope we'll be smart enough to seize it. Well, let's pray. But first, we've got to get through this. Speak of Putin, a very extraordinary player here, a first-class sadist, it would appear, on our televisions of this relentless bombing of civilians in Ukraine. At the same time, an incredibly reckless gambler, even mentioning nuclear weapons. What is the unseen so far possibility of compromise starting again with that man? This is a very difficult question. Nobody knows how this is going to end. Nobody knows how to end this. I mean, one possibility is that Putin is defeated, something that was unimaginable a week ago that now is plausible. Another is that this war drags on for months, that the Ukrainians lose their cities, their government goes into exile, and we're looking at a protracted insurgency against Russian forces. I got to tell you, from a strictly realist point of view, you may say, that is actually a desirable outcome for the United States. It's terrible for the Ukrainian people. It's terrible for Europe. But if our national 
security strategy was being run by artificial intelligence. You know, this is what artificial intelligence would dictate. It's in U.S. interest to bleed Russia dry in Ukraine mm. and cause the collapse of Putin's rule. That is a very painful process. And I don't know if America or Europe is going to be willing to stand by and, and watch that tragedy unfold. Then you have to say, well, OK, let's get away out right now. And can we build a diplomatic off ramp? for Putin? Can we find some face-saving way for him to retreat? And that's what people like uh, French President Macron are talking to Putin about. We hope that, that the Israeli President Bennett is talking to Putin about this. The U.S. is working behind the scenes to try to get China to play an intermediary. Well, what would that deal look like? It would almost certainly involve territorial concessions on the part of Ukraine, yielding Crimea to direct Russian annexation, perhaps allowing the Donbass republics that declared their independence before the war to join Russia or be severed, certainly from Ukraine. What Putin wants is neutrality of Ukraine. So Ukraine can't join the EU or NATO. These are not acceptable to the Ukrainian people, but it may be the kind of compromise you come up with on the U.S.-Russia level. That's more realizable. I mean, we could, for example, pull out of Europe our 100, 150 tactical nuclear weapons that we keep stored there. And in exchange, Putin could reduce or allow greater visibility into his tactical nuclear weapon stockpiles. Putin has said he wants to bring back the limits from the INF Treaty, the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty that Ronald Reagan negotiated, that Trump severed during his presidency, and put limits on the kinds of ranges of nuclear weapons that can be deployed globally. We could do that. We could engage in global, uh, what they call strategic stability talks. We could work towards another treaty that reduces Russian and U.S. forces. There would be a concession on our part, but we require concessions. In other words, there's a set of things that we could do that could satisfy Putin. But is that acceptable to Ukraine? Is that acceptable to European opinion? Because it would leave Putin in power. I just don't know if any of those diplomatic solutions are going to be feasible. Joe, that's a fascinating long list and human intelligence working at its best, vastly preferable to the artificial intelligence of you know bleeding Russia and Ukraine to death's door. The Biden people and Biden himself had been clear. They were ahead of the news, so to speak, about the war that was coming. Been very clear on the point of no boots on the ground, no American entry, no getting even close to a nuclear confrontation. At the same time, I think we all feel this pressure building of the news itself, this incredible, wanton, useless suffering on the part of Ukrainian families. How many older women have you seen with all of their possessions in white plastic bags, helpless in cold weather too? And the media transmitting these powerful pleas from Ukrainian people, including Zelensky, don't tell us you feel our pain, don't empathize, help us, do something. And that means no-fly zone. That means come in. And the media, the media is sending us horrific pictures and feelings. At the same time, it's pushing us off that course of patience. I, I completely agree, Chris. I mean, the emotional power of this conflict is enormous. I mean, I've been doing a lot of interviews this week, and I, I was watching Richard Engel's report from one of the train stations where refugees were crowding on the trains, and I started to tear up before I went on. I mean, yep. it's just so logically we cannot go in 
emotionally, everybody wants to go in. And so this is where you really need some calm, human, you know, stewardship of our national security apparatus. One of those options I do not think is a no-fly zone. I understand why people want this, but it's not something you just declare. It's something you have to go enforce. And that would mean U.S. shooting down Russian planes that violated the no-fly zone. And to do that, the very first thing our military does in a situation like this is they suppress the enemy defenses. Mm -hmm. That means before we even start offensive operations, you are bombing radar sites, you're bombing anti-air defensive sites in Belarus, in Russia. So you're bombing Russian sites. You are killing hundreds of Russian and Belarusian soldiers. That is war. And that gets you on the path to nuclear war. And that's why we're not doing it. Mm. Stick with this emotional, strangely feeling-laden experience of the new nuclear age. It gets described now in terms of personal character, intangibles, human suffering that we see, bleeding, hunger, intense pain. That was not part of the story in the Cuban Missile Crisis or in the Iraq War, for that matter. We didn't see it and turn away and tear up and see Anderson Cooper tearing up. Yeah, well, they say that this is the world's first TikTok war. I don't think that's quite right. I think there were lots of videos coming out of the Syrian war and even before in the Afghan war. It's just that they weren't as easily accessible by the West. And, you know, especially during the Cuban Missile Crisis, for example, there were no videos and we controlled the media. Well, th now we're in right. a world where there are multiple media sources, where right. and especially in Ukraine, where everybody has a cell phone, access right. to broadband, Internet. You're seeing this stuff streaming out and it is horrific and it is unfiltered and it is coming right at you. If it's not on cable news, it's going to be on YouTube. And if it's not on YouTube, it's on TikTok or Instagram. It's everywhere. And right. it is powerful. It is hitting us in our emotional cores. Yeah, and a lot of it, a lot of it is good, Joe, in the sense that we are feeling the intense crisis of the Ukrainian people one by one. I often wonder, though, I mean, 20 years ago, if Iraqi families had had iPhones and were transmitting videos of their suffering under our bombardment and our relentless attack, totally asymmetrical war on them, I mean, how different would things have been? in our country, in the world. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, even accounting for the, the racial factor here. I mean, there's yep. no question that people are treating Ukraine and Ukraine refugees and Ukraine suffering different than we treated uh, Syrian refugees and Syrian suffering, even though what you're watching in the cities of Ukraine is exactly what Putin did to Aleppo and other cities in Syria. For, you know, it's not just the videos that are making a difference. It's that the victims here are white and they look yes. like most Americans and they are part of Europe. And that's the other part. This is happening in Europe. This is part right. of the collective consciousness of Europe. We immediately remember what happened in World War II, even for those of us who weren't alive in World War II. <laughs> it's ingrained in us. And we see this again and we go, no, we have to stop this. We cannot let this go on. Joseph Rincioni, what's new about the new nuclear age? Well, what's old is new again. What we're seeing now is 
basically a replay of the kinds of strategies we had in the 1950s. In the 1950s, when we went nuclear nuts, we started building nuclear weapons for every conceivable military mission. We went from about 200 weapons in the late 1940s to 20,000 weapons by 1960, by the time John F. Kennedy was elected. And we had anti-air weapons equipped with nuclear warheads. We had nuclear torpedoes, nuclear depth charges. There was even a nuclear bazooka that could fire a very small yield nuclear weapon about a quarter mile. Why anyone would want to do that is beyond me. We all thought that nuclear weapons could be completely integrated into our conventional forces, could be used in a battlefield use. Well, we've, we backed off from that. That ended. In fact, it was George H.W. Bush in 1991 that finally got rid of the Army's nuclear artillery and short-range rockets, took nuclear weapons off of Navy, surface fleet, etc., and really started to pull them back to just a strategic deterrent. Well, that period is over. Once again, both Russia and the United States are building new battlefield nuclear weapons, not replacing mm. old ones, which we're also doing, but building new ones, new, more usable weapons. Many people in the Pentagon have thought that we've been self-deterred from using nuclear weapons because they're too big. So we've reduced the yield so they could be Hiroshima size, a tenth of Hiroshima size. And so the idea is that we could use this powerful weapon to our military advantage. Well, now we're seeing this play out in Ukraine. And how does it look? How does that yeah, theory look when you it's on your side, when you're developing these weapons, you think this gives you maximum flexibility, multiple options. You will deter any foe or defeat any foe should you go to combat. Well, how does it look when you're the one staring down the barrel of the nuclear gun? Not so comforting, not so clear what the path to victory is here, not so clear on how this war would end and how there could possibly be a winner. Just months ago, the five nuclear armed states who were the Five permanent members of the Security Council issued a statement repeating Mikhail Gorbachev and Ronald Reagan's statement that a nuclear war can never be won and must never be fought. The ink wasn't even dry on that statement before Putin started making his nuclear threats. Unprecedented, by the way. Unprecedented. A Russian leader to make these kinds of direct threats to NATO, direct threats to the West, you know, maybe you could go back to Nikita Khrushchev, but after that, you just haven't seen this. A Russian president, a Russian leader, to the best of our knowledge, has never raised the alert level of his nuclear forces, certainly not since the 1970s, never in the history of the Russian Federation. So this word, unprecedented, is being used a lot lately, and it's true. We're seeing things we never saw before, and that's causing some of the anxiety and some of the strategic confusion about what what to do? How do we get out of this crisis? You mean his present day threats? I mean, his reminders, his... Putin has said several times in this crisis that anyone who dares to confront Russia, or as he puts it, threaten the Russian state, will be met with the consequences beyond their imagination. This is his quote. This is what he said as he was announcing the invasion of Ukraine, or what he called the special military operation, that he said Russia remains one of the most powerful nuclear states. In this context, there should be no doubt for anyone that any potential aggressor will face defeat and ominous consequences should it directly attack our country. That was just one of his statements, and he's made them repeatedly. And then, of course, then he announced that he was putting his nuclear forces on uh, a special combat readiness status. I keep thinking of John F. Kennedy 
what might he be telling us as human beings, Joe Biden as president of the United States, a way to compromise, to get past himself, his ego, even his mm. country in this crisis? I think there are two things that JFK would say to Joe Biden right now. And the one is, there is no military solution to this. So number one, I think JFK would say, seek the diplomatic solution and be prepared to make significant concessions. Number two, he would say, after it's over, move as quickly as you can to get rid of these weapons. Ever since Hiroshima, there's been these two fundamental world reactions to nuclear weapons. One is these are horrible weapons. We have to get rid of them. And the other is these are horrible weapons. We have to get them. And those two tendencies have fought and struggled for 77 years. Sometimes one or the other dominates. Right now, this is in the balance once again. When this war is over, we better be prepared because a, a brief window is going to open up where we get to examine our past policies, forge new policies. And those of us who want diplomacy first, those of us who want to see fewer wars have better be ready to demand that we take dramatic action, as dramatic as what is happening right now on the military front. We have to take dramatic action on the diplomatic front Get rid of these weapons while we have the chance. Joe, you're encouraging. I am an optimist. Despite everything we have spent this podcast talking about, I am optimistic. Explain that, Joe. You stare into the abyss. The abyss stares back and you say, I'm an optimist. In our lives, we have been to the abyss, whether it's the Cuban Missile Crisis or the scares of the early 1980s. We've seen it. And then we've seen how governments can react to that. And we see how... However, briefly, in some cases, they move towards policies that can reduce this. It is possible. It is controllable. This is not something that is being forced on up. These are weapons that we created. These are technologies that we control. We can create ways to get rid of these weapons. We can create ways to control these technologies. Joe Serencioni, thank you. Thank you for a lifetime studying these problems. And thank you for this conversation, Joe. Thank you, Chris. It's been a pleasure talking to you about this. Joe Serencioni was for years the director for nonproliferation at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. His book on weaponry is titled Deadly Arsenals, Nuclear, Biological, and Chemical Threats. Thanks also to Serhi Ploki and Elaine Scarry for this slice of our radio podcast series, In Search of Monsters, in collaboration with the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Joe Serencioni is our associate there. Find his writing in the Quincy Institute's online magazine, responsiblestatecraft.org. Open Source is part of a collective of smart, independent podcasts called Hub and Spoke. This week, check out another Hub and Spoke show called Rumble Strip from producer Erica Heilman. Erica's latest episode is about Forrest Foster, an independent dairyman in central Vermont whose life shows how barter-based exchange be more generous and more practical than cash. Meet Forrest at rumblestripvermont.com and explore the whole Hub and Spoke lineup at hubspokeaudio.org. Our show this week was produced by Mary McGrath and Adam Coleman with engineering help from the WBUR production team. I'm Christopher Lydon. Join us next time. Join us every time for Open Source. Open Source.